You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. you to turn with me as we continue an exposition of the Psalms this morning to Psalm 32. Psalm 32, it begins on page 462 of your pew Bible. We're continuing in this exposition and we are in book one of the Psalter still, Psalms 1 through 41. And really the theme that comes out over and over and over through the Psalm is the kingship of God over his people. And here we see particularly that we have a good king, a kind king, a king who forgives his people and even invites us to confess our sin to him. So with great joy, let us turn our attention now to the reading of God's word this morning from Psalm 32. So hear now the word of the Lord. A mascal of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against, the Lord, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. We do now embark upon one of the most exciting weeks for many of us. As the winter is thawing, the hope of spring arrives, and no, we don't go on a spring, spring break vacation, but even better, opening day of baseball arrives on Thursday. <laughs> Teams are finishing up the final spring training games and getting ready to move back to their home stadiums, and players have been getting in shape for the last couple months, going back to the fundamentals and getting ready for a new season. And of course, you know, the Atlanta Braves, my team, they have an amazing third base coach. Let me tell you about Ron Washington. Ron Washington, he's one of the most old school baseball coaches that you can find. At 70 years old, he's still on the field every single day running drills with his infielders. And as you watch these drills, I've seen them uh, at games. Arriving early, you can see him on the sidelines, on the grass with his infielders. And these drills look incredibly basic. I mean, I could even get out there and do it. But he's teaching these players day in and day out, not just in spring training, but through the entire season, 
how to anticipate the balance of the ball, how to put your glove in the right position, how to get it ready to throw. But these drills, they're not rocket science. The drills are the fundamentals, and it's fundamentals that wins games. And because of his daily persistence in it, Wash is regarded as one of the best coaches in all of Major League Baseball. And if you played any sport, if you played any instrument, it's the fundamentals that we come back to over and over and over. And again this morning, it is the same with our faith. We come back over and over, day in, day out, week by week, back to the fundamentals. And as we come back to some of these fundamentals this morning, don't think of this as a remedial course. This isn't just for people who know less than you do. This dovetails well with last week's sermon on the necessity of repentance. But we grow when we are rooted in the fundamentals, when we know the fundamentals forward and backward, when we grow in our understanding of it, that's when we grow in faith. As we look at our psalm this morning, Psalm 32, we've spoken about this before, how it's structured, like many of these psalms, kind of like a sandwich. We have the center of the sandwich, which provides the meat, it's the focal point. It's what the psalmist is driving us to. And then as we, as we move out from the center to, to mirroring uh, past pieces of the psalm, we have a, a, these sections that, that reflect one another. So we have the center and then we move out. These, these sections reflect and we move out another section. They reflect one another. And it helps us focus on the center. It's a beautifully constructed and Psalm 32 is highly intentional and I think an incredible work of art. But it's more than that. It is great for the soul of God's people to come back and see the great blessing that belongs to any who confess their sins to God in faith. Great blessing belongs to any who confess their sins to God in faith. We'll look at these three main sections of our psalm. The first is the beginning and the end, which is the blessing of forgiveness, verses 1 and 2 and verses 10 and 11. And then second, the blessing of God's fatherly care, verses 3 through 5 and 8 through 9. And then we come finally to the center, the blessing of confession, verses six and seven. So the blessing of forgiveness of God's fatherly care and then the blessing of confession. So let's begin with the blessing of forgiveness, verses one and two and 10 and 11. And as we begin reading the Psalm, the first words show us, this first phrases are demonstrating to us first the seriousness of sin. In the first two verses, there are three synonyms used for the same idea of sin. Transgression is used, and then sin, and then iniquity. When people can parse, maybe these have particularly uh, particular nuanced meanings and definitions, and maybe that's true, but here the point is, these are this is roughly synonyms. This is the same thing being repeated in different ways over and over and over. There's transgression and sin and iniquity, and these things are serious. James Montgomery Boyce recalls a quote from the 19th and 20th century Scottish pastor, Alexander McLaren. Talking about the seriousness of sin, he says, you do not understand the gravity of the most trivial wrong act when you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart or as the breach of the constitution of your own nature or as a crime against your fellows. All this is true. It is a, a breach of the order of nature and against the law in your heart. It is a sin against your fellow man. But he says, you have not gotten to the bottom of the blackness until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. 
Every sin is serious because every sin is a flat rebellion against God himself. Even the smallest tug of covetousness in your hearts, as we talked about in Sunday school, or of lust or of anger or of disrespect is flat rebellion against the creator of heaven and earth. And this is serious because God's perfect holiness renders anyone guilty of any sin. They are condemned for eternity. Any sin, even that smallest tug of covetousness in your heart, guilty because of his perfect holiness, because of his infinite worth and value. We sin against him and his eternal holiness has been attacked and justice demands eternal judgment. And so we have to start understanding the seriousness of sin, not just those big outward acts that we think of, but of every sin of the heart, every word spoken that is sinful, that is serious. But this is why it's a blessed thing that David speaks of here when these sins are forgiven. This is the great blessing of Christ. It is this forgiveness. And each of these three words for sin, there's a different way of speaking of it being cast away from us. He says, transgressions are forgiven. Forgiven. This is uh, economic language, uh, a transaction, a commercial transaction with somebody where you are indebted to them. You owe them $500, but that debt is written off. A debt is forgiven. Now, for, forgiving debt is not free. It's not costless. In fact, it's very costly because the one who's forgiving it absorbs the cost of that debt. Writing off a debt for $500 doesn't disappear, you now have lost $500 in your pocket. But there is forgiveness when the debt is absorbed by the one who was harmed and how God in Christ for us has absorbed that sin for us. We'll come back to that. But transgression is forgiven. And next we see that sin is covered. Not that they're covered up, but it's put out of sight. It's no longer the weight that you carry your sin is no longer shame on you. Think of the great pilgrim's progress where Christian begins this journey with this pack on his shoulders, this weight that he's carrying around. And so toilsome and difficult and heavy. He comes to the cross. He comes to the cross and kneels at the cross, professes faith in Christ. And what happens to that pack on his shoulders? He's free. It comes off and it rolls down the hill into the tomb where sins are never heard from again. Sin is covered. It is gone. It is no longer your burden to carry. And then he says, blessed is the man against the, whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Your iniquity is counted elsewhere. Or some older translations, even as we sung in our Psalter this morning, sin is imputed elsewhere. So you're free. It's not yours. This sin is now carried by somebody else, but you don't have to pay the price for it any longer. The judgment isn't coming for you. Your transgression is forgiven. Your sin is covered. Your iniquity is not counted to you any longer. What we call this is judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness. This is where in the heavenly courtroom of God's justice, there's a legal pronouncement. Forgiven. This one is not guilty. The judge has declared your sins are gone from you. Judicial forgiveness. This judicial forgiveness is on the basis of Jesus Christ alone. 
This is on the basis of what Christ has done, that picture of Christian and the Pilgrim's Progress at the cross. It's because of the cross, it's because of what Christ has done that your sins are forgiven. And it becomes ours when we look to Christ in faith, when we trust in him. Actually, verses one and two of the Psalm are quoted in Romans chapter four. Paul quotes them word for word from the Greek, tra- Greek translation of it. And he puts it in this broader context where he's saying that this forgiveness is not something you can earn. It's not something you do by the works of the law. It's not that you can do something to atone for your own sins. It's not that you can do something that makes you good enough to receive forgiveness. This is not something you do. This is a gift of God's free grace received by faith alone. This judicial forgiveness is a declarative action. You are forgiven because somebody else has carried it for you. And it forgives all of your sins. Whereas our catechism says, pardoneth all of your sins. They're gone, past, present, and future. All of your sins in Christ are forgiven because that once for all act forgave all of them. The punishment was paid. Justice was rendered on the cross. And every sin of everyone who looks to Christ was dealt with in God's justice on that day. So this is true now through eternity. All sins of yours, if you are in Christ, are forgiven. The weight is gone. You no longer need to carry them with you because Christ carried them on the cross. This is true blessedness. This is why he says it is blessed to be forgiven. Is it not? Because you no longer face the condemnation that is yours under the law. This blessed begins the same way Psalm 1 does. You remember that? Blessed is the man. It's the same thing here. Blessed is the one. Or Jesus in the Beatitudes, he speaks, blessed is the one. This great pronouncement of what it means to know eternal life in Christ. Blessed are you. You are supremely blessed. This is not just a a glib statement of hashtag blessed. You see this all the time, right? Somebody on social media a beautiful dinner they're having, post a picture of their beautiful family, hashtag blessed. This is not a glib statement, hashtag blessed. It's not something that you say when life is going well, when you're you're healthy, when you're financially stable, when there's no major conflict of your life. But we say hashtag blessed on our worst days as well. We can say we are blessed even in the darkest of days because this is objectively true. You are cleared in God's courtroom. You are forgiven. You are blessed in the sight of God. God's word presents a very different picture of what it looks like to be hashtag blessed. It's a man on his knees, tears streaming down his eyes, admitting his deepest, darkest sins before God while saying, in that moment, I'm blessed. A man who has nothing left, who feels like his life has been taken from him, his family is gone, he's in financial ruin. He says in that moment, I am blessed because he knows this is true in the courtroom of God. David tells us, you are truly, ultimately, eternally blessed. This is a weighty statement. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And indeed, this is the great need of our day. We need the forgiveness of sins before God. The world needs this today. 
The world is chasing after so many different things. They're preoccupied with so many different new ideas. What the world needs is blessedness or standing forgiven in the sight of God. This is the greatest need of the day. And verse 11, 10 and 11 is the other bookend of this psalm that shows us the result of understanding this blessedness. It leads to praise before God. It says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That's what blessed means. You are loved steadfastly by the creator of heaven and earth. And he calls us all to rejoice. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is something that changes you. Forgiveness changes you. And as we come back again to consider it, we are led to rejoicing. Are you not? Because your sins are forgiven. They are no longer yours. Let that sink in. Lisa, rejoicing. Lisa, putting a smile on our face. Shouting for joy. I think, why do Christians sing? It's a strange thing a bunch of people to stand up in a room together and sing together. It's really bizarre. There's not many places in our world that this happens. Why do we sing? We sing for joy because we are a forgiven people. We know that someone has carried our sins for us. We know we are utterly undeserving, but we have been declared forgiven and righteous in Christ. The blessing of forgiveness. Let's look at next The next section, as it mirrors uh, one another in our psalm, the blessing of God's fatherly care. And this is verses three through five and eight and nine. Both of these sections are interesting because they're both in the first person, the the two sections of our psalm that move to a first person. And we have your instruction from two individuals, first with David, verses three through five, and then God himself addresses us in verses eight through nine. And both of these are emphasizing God's fatherly care for us. So let's look at verses three through five, and we'll briefly touch on the other part in a few moments. But mostly we're going to look at this, verses three through five. David's instruction to us. He's warning us against failing to confess our sins to God. And he goes through this experience he's had, this excruciating experience he had. His bones wasted away. He was groaning all day. Because he kept silent, it says. He refused in this moment to acknowledge his sin. He had this season of serious difficulty and suffering because, as he says in verse 4, God's hand was heavy upon him. So we're talking about forgiveness here. We're judicially forgiven. So what is this? What do we do with this? Is this God punishing David for his sins after all? For a believer who trusts in Christ, no. This is not God punishing David. This is not God punishing you if you have a season that feels like this. There's no longer no there's no longer any punishment. There's no condemnation for your sin. God does not punish you for your sin. We are free. Our record is clear. Even if we die with unconfessed sin, we die a forgiven people. So what is this? What is David speaking of here? I think this is a reflection of what unconfessed sin does to us. Let me explain. Paul Tripp, I think this is a good example, a good good, good starting place for this discussion. Paul Tripp says, and I've said this before, he says that every time you sin, it makes God less real to you. 
Every time you sin, it makes God less real to you. Because what you're doing is by sinning, you're separating yourself from a good and right relationship with God. You're not losing your salvation, but there is a subjective sense that I'm stepping away from God. I'm moving away from him. I'm rejecting him in my sin. We're seeking an an autonomy, an autonomy that destroys us. And so when we do this, there are natural consequences for our sin, for running away from God when we fail to confess our sins. We're in this place of now there's a, a barrier between myself and God and I'm turning from him. And there are natural consequences for that. But even more than that, though, David speaks here that God's hand was heavy upon him. What is this? I think this is a picture of fatherly discipline. A fatherly discipline. Not punishment, but discipline. Discipline and punishment are very different things as every parent must know. Punishment is saying, this is what you deserve for your sin. I'm going to take out justice upon you. Discipline is correction. Discipline is saying what you are doing is not good. It is not honoring to God. It is not loving your neighbor. We will take corrective action so that this is not done in the future. Again, punishment and discipline are very different. Discipline seeks correction. Because God loves us, God shows us how terrible our sin is so that he will bring us, so it would bring us back to him. He's not punishing us, but he's correcting us. And that's what David experienced here. With God's hand heavy upon him, it was God's fatherly discipline. It was ultimately God's care for him because what did it do? It drove David back to God. And the resolution to this comes to verse five, where David here says, I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Notice those three words used again, sin, transgression, and iniquity. Those three words for sin, David refuses to cover. David acknowledges his sin. He comes to the Lord and confesses his guilt. He's no longer minimizing his sin. He's not excusing his sin. He's not passing the blame onto somebody else. He's not, he's not uh, sitting in self, self-pity. He's not uh, upgirded by self-righteousness. He says, I was wrong. He says to God, I sinned against you. And this is what we see in Psalm 51, where David makes that great confession of a sin against you and only you, I have sinned. And of course he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Bathsheba's husband. He did much sin to other people, but fundamentally at the root, our sin is sinning against God. And we must acknowledge that. You've probably had experiences where people apologize to you, or at least you've heard it, celebrities or politicians, somebody apologizing, and the apology will go something like this. I'm sorry if I caused any offense. And actually what that's doing is weaponizing this and turning it against the person who's been hurt by it. The person you've hurt, you're saying, I'm sorry if I hurt you, if I offended you. Saying you really didn't need to be offended by that. But if it happened, I'm sorry. That is not biblical confession and repentance. Instead, we turn to God or we turn to others. We say, I did X and it was wrong and it hurt you and I'm sorry. Please forgive me. This is the kind of of honest confession that David speaks of here. 
a confession where we do not hide any of our sin. We do not hide under the fig leaves that Adam and Eve attempted to hide behind in the garden. When they were found, they thought they could hide their shame. Why are we trying to hide our shame before God? He knows, he sees. Let's be honest and confess our sin before him. And the result is so beautiful. So succinctly put at the end of verse five, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here's what we have fatherly forgiveness. We have as fatherly forgiveness. We talked about judicial forgiveness before, where you're declared righteous in God's courtroom. That is true, past, present, and future. All of your sin is forgiven. But here, have fatherly forgiveness. So a relational forgiveness because that wandering away from God, now that confessing our sin to him, we know we are forgiven and we are now restored back to relationship with him. This is fatherly forgiveness. It's not as if these sins are not judicially forgiven in Christ. They are. But these sins have created that relational barrier between us and our heavenly father and his fatherly forgiveness restores our experience of that relationship with him. This was the linchpin that brought him out of that dark time back into enjoying God yet again, confessing his sins and knowing that God says to him, I forgive you. We can be reconciled to our God. We can turn from our sin and enjoy again life in his presence. And that's what verses eight and nine are speaking of, where now we see God instructing his people. God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. This is what it looks like to, to receive instruction from God himself, to know how to live in a way that honors him. This is the Christian life. We come to God's word. God instructs. God teach, teaches us. God's eye, his fatherly eye of care is upon us every day, every moment. And if you're in a season of running from confessing your sins, you're running from God himself. You're saying, my own fig leaves are better than the leaves and the sacrifice of Christ on my behalf. And it's only when we recognize our sins and acknowledge them before God will we go back to experiencing the joy of our salvation, as David prayed for in Psalm 51. And so how much better is it to walk in honesty and in truth with God? He will receive you. He will not turn you away. He will not reject you. Why are you trying to hide from him? Let there be no deceit in you, as he said in verse two. There needs to be no fear, no need to hide from God. In Christ, he will never turn you away. But as this vertical relationship is the emphasis of this psalm, there are implications for our horizontal relationships with one another as well. Because not only do we seek forgiveness from God for our sin against him, so we also seek forgiveness from one another when we sin against them. Recognize the harm that you've caused and do everything you can to make it right. Here's the thing, in God's courtroom, you can do nothing to make it right. But with other people, we can restore, we can, we can undo those things we have done sometimes. And if we've trampled over the good name of another, well, we build up that good name again. If we've stolen from somebody, we give that back to them. Our confession includes restoration, doing everything we can to make it right. But this also on the receiving end has implications. 
when we receive the request of forgiveness from another. And this is the point of Jesus' parable that we read earlier. This unforgiving servant, the servant who was was forgiven an, an incredible sum of money. And then somebody who came to him who owed him a small amount of money by comparison. This man refused to forgive it. Though he had been forgiven everything, he refused to forgive a small amount. And Jesus says that is entirely inconsistent. For you people who've been forgiven everything by God, can you not forgive the sins of your brother against you? There's a great book that I would commend. I recently finished earlier this year. Tim Keller has a recent book called Forgive. Why should I and how can I? Incredibly practical, incredibly theological, very good. And I highly recommend it. And Keller is bringing out these exact principles of which we speak. As you have been forgiven, so we are to forgive others. We cancel the debt even to our own hurt. Forgiving does hurt. Forgiving costs. But we know the cost of Christ laying down his life for us. So we can pay the cost of forgiving others. Forgiveness does not mean that trust is restored, that the relationship goes back to where it was, that we cannot even seek justice in the case. That's not what forgiveness means, but it does mean there's no retribution. It means I do not hate that one. It means I, in fact, seek your good from here on out. And this circles us back to the beginning. When we understand how blessed we are in Christ, if we understand the deep, eternal significance of that statement, you are blessed, then and only then can you extend true forgiveness to others. It's all under the blessing of God's fatherly care. Don't run from him. Allow his grace and mercy to infiltrate when you sin, when you confess your sin before him. And so we come finally to the center of our sandwich. The blessing of confession. Verses six and seven, the blessing of confession. Again, this is the center of the psalm. This is in in Hebrew poetic construction, the most important part, the the part that that in, in effect David is underlining and highlighting and saying, don't miss this. He says in verse six, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. This is a call. It's a call to everyone to offer prayer to God when he may be found. Now, when is that? When can he be found? Right now is a good time. He may be found any time until that day. We'll see in a moment. He can be found any moment. Why would you delay to come to this God, offer prayer to him? And this real prayer of, of drawing near to God must begin with faith and trusting in him. We approach God on his terms, trusting in him in faith. And in this particular context, he's obviously talking about confession of sin, seeking forgiveness, a prayer, drawing near to God, say, God, I have sinned. Have mercy upon me, a sinner. As we come to the second half of verse six, there's, I think, two ways it can be read. This rush of great waters is coming, as he's speaking of it. This rush of great waters is, is flood imagery. It's calling to our mind the, the flood in Genesis. This universal worldwide destruction of water. And so David's saying this rush of great waters is coming. A, a judgment is coming. 
for all of us. And he's saying either one of two things. He's saying that the rush of great waters will not reach the one who has offered prayer to God. And this is true. When you look to God, that rush of great waters, that judgment at the end of all time is not coming for you. You will be safe. It will not reach you because you are kept safe in the ark of Jesus Christ. Maybe the other way to read it is this, that those who do not offer prayer will not be able to reach God when the rush of great waters comes. If you don't look to God now, if you refuse to pray to him now, when that rush of great waters comes, it's too late. You've missed it. You're already subject to the judgment of God. I think both of these these statements are true theologically. They're two sides of the same coin. You will be taken up in the flood of judgment if you refuse to call on him. But you will be safe if you do. If you come to him in prayer, you will be safe on that day. Not only are you declared forgiven, but you're also declared righteous in God's sight. Only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. But you have eternal life. And this is corroborated in verse 7, where David, in light of this great promise, he says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. This is the promise for all who believe and repent, who trust and confess, who have faith in Christ and turn from their sins unto God. And we can confess our sins to this gracious God precisely because the beginning and end of this psalm are true. Because we know when we trust in Christ, we are blessed. And there's nothing that can take that from us. We are immediately and judicially forgiven. And on that basis of knowing I'm judicially forgiven, I can now approach God even when I sin. And he will not reject me. He will not turn me away. On the basis of judicial forgiveness, I can know fatherly forgiveness. I can grow in relationship with God. We can have no fear that he will use our sin against us. He will not twist it and distort it. There's no shame. There's no fear. All because of Christ. The Christian, confess your sin. Do not sit under the heavy hand of God. Whatever it is that you're trying to run from, you're trying to pretend is not there. Confess your sin to God. Our putting to death sin must begin here. And in fact, it will not happen if we do not acknowledge that we are sinners and this is a particular sin of ours. Don't be like David, don't hide. His hiding is like somebody who lies and then lies again to cover up for the lie. If you're sinning and running away from that sin, it is compounding sin upon sin. Turn to God. Don't create more heartache for yourself Be honest with him and he welcomes you and he will cover you. Indeed, he has covered you in Christ. And this is true for those who've never confessed their sin before. The rush of great waters is coming. And David here, the Holy Spirit here through David is calling you this day. Don't wait for the rush of great waters. You feel the burden of your sin. If you are not in Christ, you feel the burden of your sin. You feel the shame, you feel the guilt, no matter what you try to do to cover it up, no matter how you try to go a therapeutic route to make yourself feel better, your sin weighs heavy upon you, and it should, because it will condemn you for eternity in God's courtroom. 
But David said, there's a better way. God is here now waiting for you, ready for you to turn to him. Do you feel that conviction of sin? Do you feel that you know you have been found by God and, and that fig, you're using fig leaves to cover up your sin? Turn to him this day. Don't let another day go by. Do not let the rush of great waters come. On that day, you will not be able to find him. It will be too late. The blessing of confession. God will receive you. What do you think a life knowing real forgiveness looks like? What do you think this looks like practically day in and day out? There's many things we could say. But one of the most moving literary depictions of this for me is Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. You probably know it. Maybe you know it from the musical production or that, that, that production that's been turned into a movie. But it starts with the most penetrating of scenes. Jean Valjean has been in prison for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. And upon his release, he walks for four days until he can finally find somebody who would let him in. He's an ex-convict. Nobody wants to give him work. Nobody wants to give him shelter. He finds a bishop. It's a bishop who provides for him room and board for free. Extends his generosity and kindness to this man. But in the middle of this night that he stays with the bishop, Valjean woke up and felt this strong urge. He saw at dinner the night before in the cupboard, there's a basket of silver, silver utensils. And he wakes up not having ever been around this kind of wealth before in his life, growing up poor. And after an intense internal debate, as Hugo unfolds in the pages of the book, he decides to take the silverware and flee in the middle of the night. So he did. But in the morning, the local police found Valjean suspiciously carrying around all this valuable silverware, and they knew exactly who it belonged to. So these three policemen take Valjean back to the bishop. And one of the most moving scenes of the whole book, the bishop, well aware of Valjean's theft, says to Valjean, this is the book version, he says, ah, here you are. I'm glad to see you. Well, but how is this? I gave you the candlesticks too, which are of silver like the rest, but for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why did you not carry them away with your forks and your spoons? Valjean is not only a free man, the police officers leave, but he's now a wealthy man. He's now a forgiven man. And the bishop makes sure to tell him, look, this is not a condition of your forgiveness, but you now are a forgiven man and you need to live like a forgiven man. You need to use these gifts now to live differently. But what a beautiful picture of forgiveness that this bishop is. The bishop was painted by Hugo. And in fact, most of the first part of the book, Valjean doesn't enter the picture of the book until just before this scene. The bishop, chapter after chapter after chapter, Hugo describes this bishop and his backstory and what he believes and describes him to be a, a man of great magnanimity and sincere faith. And this bishop extended the same forgiveness that he himself had received from Christ. God's still working. God's still working to make you and me like the bishop. But it begins with knowing this for sure. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Looking to Christ, you can know you are blessed. 
for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.